What makes Jesus our great high priest? As we look at John chapter 17, we've called this Jesus's high priestly prayer. So what makes him our great high priest? In order to answer that, we really need to understand the the primary functions of a priest under the Old Testament law. See, Israel's priests, generally speaking, Israel's priests were also were not also prophets, occasionally, but not generally. They didn't typically speak to the people on behalf of the Lord. So, for example, at the beginning of their history, at the beginning of the history of the nation of Israel, Moses was the prophet and Aaron was the priest. And the priest is also typically not king. Saul, Israel's first king, actually lost his kingdom because he dared to overstep the boundaries of his function as king, and he offered a sacrifice as if he were the priest. And Samuel rebuked him with these words. He says, you have done foolishly. You have not kept the command of the Lord your God, which he commanded you. For then the Lord would have established your kingdom over Israel forever, but now your kingdom shall not continue. So what was the priestly ministry under the Old Covenant, under the, under the law of the Old Testament? Well, there were essentially two tasks. First was to make an offering in blood to satisfy God's justice for sin. The wages of sin is death, and under the law, an animal would die in the place of the offender. You can see even in the law, God's grace, right? And the second task would be that the priest would make intercession to God on the basis of the sacrifice. So he would pray to God and ask forgiveness for the sinner or for even the nation of Israel, even as the blood was shed. Under the new covenant, though, in the New Testament, Christ does both of these things. He offers himself as a better and complete sacrifice for sin. And he always lives to intercede for those for whom he died. Christ is our great high priest. The Christian hope of salvation rests both on his dying for our sin and in his praying for us to be kept safe in the strong tower of the name of God. Remember that verse I read last week, Proverbs 18, verse 10 says, The name of the Lord is a strong tower. The righteous man runs into it and is safe. Safe. Saved. There is, or at least there there has been, a common misperception that God doesn't give his people more than they can handle. This is actually false. He regularly allows us to be in all kinds of situations where we can only depend upon Him. And Jesus prays us through those situations. That's what 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 13 is all about, which Paul writes this, he says, No temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. God is faithful And he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability, but with the temptation, he will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. 
At the very least, that way of escape is Christ's prayer that we would be kept in the name of God. So that even if we die, and, and Christians have died before, right? Even if we die, we are kept safe in God's name. So this morning we come to this, really these verses are the high priestly portion of this prayer. We come to that point where, where Jesus makes a specific request on behalf of his people. Where he intercedes, where he goes to the Father and asks the Father to act on our behalf. So I'm, I'm just going to read verses 9 through 13 again. We're really probably only going to get through verse 12 today. John chapter 17, beginning in verse 9, says this. Jesus praying says, I am praying for them. I am not praying for the world, but for those whom you have given me, for they are yours. All mine are yours, and yours are mine, and I am glorified in them. And I am no longer in the world, but they are in the world, and I am coming to you. Holy Father, keep them in your name, which you have given me that they may be one even as we are one. While I was with them, I kept them in your name, which you have given me. I have guarded them, and not one of them has been lost except the son of destruction, that the scripture might be fulfilled. But now I am coming to you, and these things I speak in the world, that they may have my joy fulfilled in themselves. Let's stop and pray again. Lord, I pray that you would give us ears to hear. Help us to understand and to take to heart the truth that Jesus is praying for us. That he is praying for his people. Help us to understand the significance of that. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So as Jesus comes to this main um, this main part of his prayer, where he actually offers up a specific request for his people, we can clearly see the, the concern. We can clearly see the care that he has for his disciples. Remember, throughout these chapters, 14, John 14, 15, 16, 17, he's been comforting and assuring these men, even as he prepares to leave. Let not your hearts be troubled, he has said. All through his ministry, the disciples have heavily depended upon Jesus' physical presence as their rabbi, their teacher. His physical presence as their master, as he taught them. And now he's announced that he's going to the Father. He's going to be forcibly taken from them. And even though he's been promising to send the Holy Spirit, another helper, the, the paraclete, he knows that the coming hours, the next 12 hours especially, are going to be devastating for these men. They are not ready. They are not ready for what he will experience on Calvary. And so he prays for them. He commits them to the care of the Heavenly Father. And as we saw last week, he's praying for a particular people. He's praying for those who have been given to him by the Father. He's praying for the chosen, for the elect. And as Jesus zooms in, even on these 11 disciples, we can see how he prays for their protection. 
This is the chief concern in his prayer. He is praying for a particular people that God would keep them and that God would mark them. So let's break it down. He's praying for a particular people. Verses 9 and 10 again, he he says this, I am praying for them. I'm not praying for the world, but for those whom you have given me, for they are yours. All mine are yours and yours are mine, and I am glorified in them. Well, let's acknowledge from the outset that verses 9 and 10 are really a continuation of the previous idea that we, we looked at pretty extensively last week. When we answered the question, who are the elect? Who are the, the ones whom Jesus is praying for? But now Jesus is, is specifying precisely who it is that he's praying for. He's praying for his disciples these men, these 11 men sitting there with him. I want you to hear their names. Matthew chapter 10, there are several lists of the 12 disciples. But Matthew chapter 10, verses 2, 3, and 4, lists all 12 of them and actually calls them apostles because he's giving them authority there and he's sending them out on sort of a a short-term mission. So Matthew 10, verses 2, 3, and 4 says this, These are the names of the 12 apostles. Uh, The names of the twelve apostles are these. First, Simon, who's called Peter, and Andrew, his brother, James, the son of Zebedee, John, his brother, Philip, Bartholomew, Thomas, and Matthew, the tax collector, James, the son of Alphaeus, and Thaddeus, Simon, the zealot, and then the twelfth is Judas Iscariot, who betrayed him. And of course, Judas Iscariot is the, the son of destruction from verse 12. So he's praying for these men, less Judas, but this prayer is applicable to all disciples of Jesus. It continues to today. And so as chapter 18 opens, they are crossing the the brook at Kidron. Shortly after that, we see his arrest, the trials, the crucifixion. The prayer doesn't end then. It isn't keep them for the next couple days. It isn't keep them even for the rest of their lives. It's keep them. Jesus continues his prayer really into the eternal future. Romans chapter 8 verse 34 tells us that Jesus continues continues praying even after his ascension to the right hand of God where he is indeed interceding for us. Christ prays to keep his people safe. Hebrews 7.25 says this, Consequently, Because he has passed through the heavens. Because our great high priest has passed through the heavens. He has ascended to God's right hand. Consequently, he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him since he always lives to make intercession for them. And what we're seeing here in these words is really kind of the beginning of a new ministry for the Son of God. A ministry of intercession. He is going to God on our behalf to pray for us. John Flavel, who was an English Puritan preacher in the 1600s, he he said this, he said, in this this prayer, he gives them a, a specimen or sample of that glorious intercession work, which he was just then going to perform in heaven for them. This chapter and even these few verses are a hint of what Jesus is continuing to do for us at the Father's side. 
So I said last week that the application for the sermon is very simple. If you are a Christian, Jesus is praying for you. If you're a Christian, Jesus is praying for you. It's the same thing here. Jesus is praying for a particular people. People with names like Simon Peter, Andrew, James, John, Philip, Lee, Doug, Steve, Phyllis, Diana, Sarah, Sandy, Andra, Megan. He's praying for you. He's praying that you would be kept safe in the name of God. Jesus is doing priestly work here. He's about to offer a sacrifice. He's about to offer the final sacrifice for sin in himself. But first he offers this prayer. So here's some significance of this. Under the Old Testament law, the priests, so Old Testament Levitical priests, would first have to consecrate themselves. First have to ask for forgiveness for their own sins. Have to make a sacrifice for their own sins. Make themselves holy before they could go in uh, before God to offer a sacrifice for the people. Jesus does not need to do that. He's already set himself apart. He has already stated in the previous verses that he has been fully obedient. He has already set apart as holy because he is the son of God. Because he has been perfectly obedient. He's already prayed for his own consecration. And now he comes to the Father and he prays for a particular people. So again, verse 9 says this, I am praying for them. I'm not praying for the world, but for those whom you have given me, for they are yours. This is the prayer of a high priest on behalf of the people he represents to God. The people God gave to the good shepherd to care for. The very people for whom he is preparing to offer his own blood as a sacrifice. He is praying here for a particular people. So last week, we kind of looked at this from, from our point of view. We answered the question, who are the people of Christ with these four characteristics? I said these last week. The people of Christ are those to whom he has manifested the Father's name. We have heard from him. Secondly, there are those who Christ took out of the world. We have been redeemed. Third, there are those who have kept God's word. We have repented and believed. And number four, they are those who have received Jesus as the one sent by God. And therefore, we have been brought into his family. But now we see this kind of from his point of view, which also helps to answer the question, why? Why does he pray for his own? Well, there's two answers here. First, he prays for his own because he has been entrusted with the salvation of this particular people who belong to God and have been given to him to act or work on behalf of God's saving purpose for them. He has a huge responsibility. And so he is praying for us. Jesus has been sent by the Father to do this work specifically, to purchase a people for his own possession. And so he is zealous in his prayers for those for whom he sacrificed himself. His own life for theirs, for yours, for mine. And so he is zealous to pray. And second, he prays for his own because, because Christ is glorified in a particular people. He's glorified in the church. But not just in the church generally. Even in this church. Even in Logansville Church. 
But not just in Logansville Church generally. Christ is glorified in, in you specifically. Insert your name here. Christ is glorified in you. He is glorified in his work of grace in your salvation. He has cleansed you from all of your sins. Soli Deo Gloria, to the glory of God alone. And as a result of that, he is also glorified in our holy lives and our good works. Titus 2.14 says, He gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. He is glorified in our lives. He's glorified in your confession of faith when you have trusted in him. He's glorified in your evangelism when you are obedient to his call to go and make disciples. Charles Spurgeon once preached this exhortation, and I think this still applies to us as well. He said, the tendency is so often to leave everything to be done by the minister or else one or two leading people. But I do pray you, beloved, if you be Christ's, if you belong to the Father, if, unworthy though you be, you are claimed with double ownership by the Father and the Son, do try to be of use to them. Let it be seen in your winning others to Christ that he is glorified in you. Christ is praying for a particular people. He's praying for you. Because he has been entrusted with your salvation and is therefore glorified through you. And so we come to the actual request now. He's praying for a particular people that God would keep them and mark them. So keep them, verses 11 and 12. And I am no longer in the world, but they are in the world. And I am coming to you, Holy Father, keep them in your name, which you have given me, that they may be one, even as we are one. While I was with them, I kept them in your name, which you have given me. I have guarded them, and not one of them has been lost except the son of destruction, that the scripture might be fulfilled. And just a side note about the none of them have been lost except the son of destruction. Do you remember Jesus said, what you're going to do, do quickly. Jesus sent him out because he was never one of them. There's a tenderness and a longing in this prayer. It almost reads as if, he, as if he wanted to stay and protect them himself. I'm no longer in the world, but they're in the world. I'm coming to you. Almost as if he wishes that he could take them to the Father right now. Or maybe that he could just stay with them to protect them. But of course, Jesus is fully obedient. And so he's not torn here. There is compassion. There is empathy but Jesus knows what he's got to do, what he has been sent to do. He trusts the plan. He trusts in the covenant of redemption. But like any parent, when their kids face trouble and difficulty, he has empathy and tenderness, and he prays as such. Which of you parents have not prayed, Father, keep them safe? Which of you have never prayed, Father, keep them safe? This is the good shepherd about to lay down his life for the sheep, yet praying for them, knowing that they require careful keeping. 
He sees the danger that they're in. It's danger from without and danger from within. So danger from without. They face danger from the outside sources. They face danger from the world. Not only are they left without Christ's physical presence, but they're left here in this world, in this dangerous world. Jesus' primary concern is with the corruption of worldliness. We can see that by noting who he is actually praying to, who he is addressing specifically. Holy Father. This is probably the only time Jesus uses this phrase um, in the New Testament. This is in complete contrast with the world. In the world, nothing is holy. So he is entrusting his people to his Holy Father. But in the Old Testament, God's holiness separated him from the people. But through the Son, we are now adopted into his family, and we are given the right to be called children of God. Christians face danger in the world on every side. No one knew this better than the Apostle Paul. His calling as an apostle and a preacher of the gospel, as a missionary traveling, brought him into all kinds of dangers. He wrote about some of them in 2 Corinthians 11. I've read these before, but I think it's good for us to hear them again. 2 Corinthians 11, verses 23 to 27 says this, Speaking of the dangers he faced, he said, With far greater labors, far more imprisonments, countless beatings, often near death. Five times I received from the hands of the Jews the forty lashes, less one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked, a night and a day adrift at sea, on frequent journeys, in danger from rivers, danger from robbers, danger from my own people, danger from Gentiles, danger in the city, danger in the wilderness, danger at sea, danger from false brothers, in toil and hardship, through many a sleepless night, in hunger and thirst, often without food, in cold and exposure. He faced danger from without. But beyond the physical danger, John would warn us about our affections, worldliness. Guard our affections. So he says in in 1 John 2, verse 15, he says, Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world... The love of the Father is not in him. It's fairly blunt, isn't it? Do not love the world or the things in the world. Or how about Romans chapter 12, verse 2? Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. There's actually a biblical story that perfectly illustrates this, I think. Um, the danger that we face while at the same time Jesus is praying for us. It's Mark chapter 6, verses 45 to 51. Mark chapter 6, verse 45. You don't have to turn there. Just listen to this. Immediately, he, that is Jesus, made his disciples get into the boat and go before him to the other side, to Bethsaida, while he dismissed the crowd. And after he had taken leave of them, he went up on the mountain to pray. And when evening came... The boat was out on the sea, and he was alone on the land. And he saw that they were making headway painfully, for the wind was against them. 
And about the fourth watch of the night, he came to them walking on the sea. He meant to pass by them. But when they saw him walking on the sea, they, they thought it was a ghost and cried out. For they all saw him and were terrified. But immediately he spoke to them and said, Take heart, it is I. Do not be afraid. And he got into the boat with them, and the wind ceased, and they were utterly astounded. Jesus is up on the mountain praying by himself, safely on dry land. And he sees the disciples, the disciples that, that he sent out there. You guys go on ahead. I'll join you later. He sent them out there and he sees them struggling. He sees them in pain, making headway painfully. But 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 5 reminds us that we, by God's power, are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. No matter what the storm is, El Roi, the God who sees, is watching and even praying. Jesus is praying to the Father that we would be kept safe. But the disciples and us are also facing not only a danger from without, but also a danger from within. And really, he's speaking here about, about danger from within the church. That's why he prays, and even as we read John 17, he prays this over and over again, that they may be one even as we are one. Jesus is praying that this group of 11 men would be united in purpose and mission. He is praying that they would cooperate with each other in their upcoming ministry. This was especially important in those earliest days of the church, the earliest days of their ministry. They're going to go through an incredibly stressful and difficult time just in the coming days here, just really in the coming hours. They're going to see what will happen to Christ on the cross. They're going to be blamed for removing his body after the resurrection. They're going to be accused of all manner of treachery. In fact, history tells us that all of them will be put to death except for probably John, who didn't have an easy life either. But Jesus prayed for them. And as I said, this prayer is reliable. The Father answered the prayers of the Son. So listen to what happened immediately following the ascension. Immediately after Jesus left them, in Acts chapter 1, verses 12 and 14, immediately after the ascension, they returned to Jerusalem from the mount called Olivet, which is near Jerusalem, Sabbath day's journey away. And when they had entered, they went up into an upper room where they were staying. Here's that list again. Peter and John and James and Andrew, Philip and Thomas, Bartholomew and Matthew, James the son of Alphaeus and Simon the zealot, and Judas the son of James. All these were with one accord, were devoting themselves to prayer, together with the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus and his brothers. The disciples of Jesus Christ that he prayed for would with one accord gather together and pray. They didn't know what else to do. So they prayed. They prayed as one, even as Jesus prayed to his Father. And because of this prayer in Acts chapter 1, because of this prayer, the stage is set for the unity of the, of the apostles that we see all throughout the book of Acts. Because Jesus prayed for them, and because they immediately did the same thing that he did. 
They went to the Lord in prayer with one accord. The unity of the apostles is all throughout the book of Acts. You can see it as the church begins to quickly, suddenly grow. Look up Acts 2, 42 to, 40, to the end of the chapter, 47. The unity of the church. Look at all the way through to, to Acts 15 when, the, when, when they all assemble again because there is a, a, an issue. Acts chapter 6 when they appoint seven men to, to go and take care of the Greek-speaking widows. They're, they're of one accord. They're united And by the way, the dangers that Paul faced, those were external dangers. But they were couched in internal dangers. So I read 2 Corinthians eleven twenty four to 27. Let me read a couple other verses in that same passage. A couple before and then the verse right after that. He says this. He says, and what I'm doing, I will continue to do. That is, preach the gospel in order to undermine the claim of those who would like to claim in their boasted mission that they work on the same terms as we do. Such men are false apostles, deceitful workmen, disguising themselves as apostles of Christ. There's division in the church. Paul has been praying for unity. Paul has been correcting their unity. There, there is danger from within. As false teachers have crept into the church. And then he says this, after he lists all those dangers I read earlier, he says, and apart from other things, there is the daily pressure on me of my anxiety for all of the churches. He knows the pressures the churches are facing. The pressure of division, the pressure of all kinds of things creeping in, all kinds of sin creeping in over and over and over in his epistles. Paul is concerned with the unity of the churches and it actually gives him anxiety. It keeps him up at night. This is common amongst ministers, at least. I think it's common amongst elders. I think it's common in churches where we are concerned for unity. And I am so thankful for Logansville Church. And Jesus is praying for us. He's praying that his people would be kept in his name. And he is praying that we would be, he even goes on here in verse 13 to, to pray that not only would we be kept, but that we would be marked by joy. But we're going to pick that one up next week. That we would be marked by joy. And so let me just finish with a quote from J.C. Ryle on this prayer. Bishop Ryle, the Bishop of Liverpool, writing in his commentary, he says, This special intercession of the Lord Jesus is one grand secret of the believer's safety. He is daily watched and thought for and provided for with unfailing care by one whose eye never slumbers and never sleeps. Jesus is able to save them to the uttermost who come unto God by him because he ever lives to make intercession for them. They never perish because he never ceases to pray for them and his prayer must prevail. They stand and persevere to the end, not because of their own strength and goodness, but because Jesus intercedes for them. Judas fell over, fell never to rise again. And while Peter fell, he repented and was restored. The reason for the difference lay under the words of Christ to Peter. I have prayed for you that your faith fail not. Luke 22. We stand here as a particular people who are kept in the name of God. 
not only because Christ has died for us, but also because Christ always lives to pray for us. We are kept safe. If you have trusted in Christ for salvation, you are kept safe in the name of God, in the strong tower of God's name, because Jesus is praying for you. This should be great comfort for us today. This should be of great comfort for us because Jesus is praying for you. This week at our elders meeting, we were talking about uh, perseverance of the saints. One of the guys made a comment that while while God doesn't remove our salvation, obviously, we are saved um, eternally. Sometimes he actually takes our lives when we fall into sin, even those who are believers, when we refuse to repent, when we refuse. Uh, Paul actually says this in 1 Corinthians 11 in discussing the um, regulations around communion. He says that's why some of you are weak and ill and some have died because of their sin. He cuts their lives short. This week I was heard of another pastor that committed suicide. Um, and it's all coming out it's because of there's there's unrepentant sin in his life. And I, that's my profession, so I think of those things. I see those guys. God cut his life short in a scandalous way because of his unrepentant sin. But I want to just assure you that even as though... Maybe that's a difficult illustration. We are kept. I think he forgot this promise. I think he forgot that Jesus was praying for him. That he would be kept safe in God's name. In the strong tower of the Lord. It's easy to forget those things and to become overwhelmed with the news. To become overwhelmed with life. But Jesus is praying for you. Let's pray. Father, we praise you for this truth. That Christ has prayed and continues to intercede for us. That we would be kept safe. Father, I pray that as we leave here today and we go into an uncertain world. And we see uncertain um, news. And we don't know what's going to happen next week or tomorrow. I pray that we would be reminded of the truth, the solid rock truth that we are kept safe because of Jesus praying for us. That there is nothing that this world can do to us to remove us from the family of God. Father, we thank you for that truth. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.